the first one was um, Tony and Tina's Italian wedding. Right. Which has also been around forever. Yes. And that yes. one's more what you're describing where you do sit at a table with other people and you are served dinner and drinks as right. part of the experience. Yeah, that's probably what jogged my memory on that. Right. Not that I've ever seen it, of course. <laughs> that was also fun, but I don't think as fun as some people have made it out to be. Mm. It was fine. It was fun. The people who were really into it were really into it. Um, I think it would be if you were someone who was only moderately interested in the Rocky Horror Picture Show and you went to one of the midnight showings with like the, <laughs> the ghost cast or whatever. Right. Like it would be fine. You would enjoy yourself, but you you realize that there are other people in the audience and that are part of the cast that are way more into it and enjoying it more than you are. And, and they're letting you know, I'm assuming. Oh, yes. Yes, they are. Uh, this was not that. This was more just like, uh, you know, two actors putting on characters. They have, you know, a set set of scenes that they're going to follow and numbers they're going to do, but they're also going to bring audience members up on stage and do a little bit of improv and, and fun stuff with them too. So it was good. Cool. And I made cannolis. So <laughs> I believe it's uh the, the plural is already there. A singular cannoli is a cannolo. Is it really? Or are you just yeah. being a difficult? It's hard let's to tell go sometimes. With, <laughs> let's go with, since this whole episode is filled with paradoxes, let's go with yes. <laughs> oh, hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. You know, just like you, I was decanted by my creators with loving tenderness and a complete absence of electrodes or capacitors. Weaned at an early age from a calcium-rich slurry, I still vaguely opine for the contented warmth that comes with a full food processing organ and loving, non-metallic embraces from my assigned caretakers. With me is Chris, who is also here. Now, the jury's out on what you actually are, but I think, and this might be considered damning with faint praise, I think at the very least we can say you're not the Pinocchio doll voiced by Pauly Shore. That must be a thing that actually exists. I'm not sure if I want more information. <laughs> you are correct, sir. <laughs> On both fronts. Aren't there at least three Pinocchio movies currently in production or about to be released? Yes. And you know what else is happening that will destroy your faith in humanity and whatever's left of your robot childhood. Winnie the Pooh has entered the public domain. <sighs> no, I'm excited about that. They are making an animated Winnie the Pooh horror movie. That is not a joke. That's a thing that's <laughs> happening too. Oh dear. Well, I guess <laughs> I'm not precious about Winnie the Pooh. That's not something. You still should have said, oh, bother. Oh, bother. That's, I don't even really know Winnie the Pooh all that well, aside from the fact that I know the basic characters and was forced to watch the Tigger movie once. Yeah, I always assumed that it was just an uncomfortable story about a bear that had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> he could not find anywhere but a honeypot, and that's just wrong. 
It is. Yeah, I am not precious in any way, shape, or form about Winnie the Pooh. So uh, if they want to go and do something massively insane with it, more power to them. You know, whoever those people are. What do you mean, those people? The ones that are not me. <laughs> the others. The others. Uh, let's anyway. Talk, let's talk about some tech garbage, shall we? So, tagging on to a discussion that you started with a lightning round episode. I regret this immediately. <laughs> last week or the week before? Hard to say. We could look it up, but I'm not going to. No, no. I actually don't think we can look it up. No. That ship has sailed. Let's take a not-so-quick deep dive into this HTTP3 thing. You know, that only works if people can see the words. It's funny, though. It's funny, though. The funny thing is that it's a paradox. Okay. It's not quick because it's going to take us a while. I, I but it is quick because it's about quick. So it isn't quick, but it is quick. <gasps> Think about it, man. Whoa. Have you ever really even looked at your hands? They're like, whoa. Anyway. Well, okay. Anyway. All right. <clears throat> Let's talk about HTTP3. But first, because I did the research and can't delete anything I've ever written, let's also talk about HTTP 1 and 2. Okay. Because they existed as well. Uh, ostensibly before HTTP 3. Before and currently. Well, because they're all Wait, living together a... in like the same house, right? Yeah, that's not actually a paradox, is it? It's like a real world anyway. kind of situation. And like, so anyway. <laughs> they're all listed as HTTP forward slash and then a number. So when I say HTTP three, I'm actually saying HTTP forward slash three, but I'm going to omit saying slash because that's annoying. Okay. Not to be pedantic, but HTTP one was not the first HTTP because of course it wasn't. Hmm. HTTP one was released in 1996 and was the first standard. That standard was nearly immediately updated into what became dominant HTTP 1.1. Okay. So that all happened in 96, 97. So to be pedantic, HTTP itself was actually invented in the 80s by a gentleman you might have heard of, Tim Berners-Lee. So HTTP zero? Why not? I mean, that is a common naming parlance in the world of technology, starting with zero. So yeah, I'm right. in. Yeah. HTTP two then came out in 2000 six All right. 10 years 10 years not bad and http3 as we discussed briefly last week is happening uh well now so, it's been worked on for three to four years but the actual standard has been signed quite recently it's surprising that there was such a gap of time between two and three sort of implies that there, two was pretty good right and there have been minor upgrades but a the upgrades weren't significant enough to call it something else mm-hmm but yeah, those are the rough bullets of when these things were created. HTTP 1 and 2 are both built to run over TCP, which is another transport protocol that was invented in the 70s, mm -hmm. which is older. Invented by someone you definitely should have heard of, if for no other reason than his name sounds like a level boss from a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game, Vint Surf. He's right next to Rocksteady and Bebop. Seriously, man. Seriously, he's in the water stage. He is tough. <laughs> so 
Last definition, HTTPS is a combination of a bunch of things. TCP transport, TLS, wrapping up HTTP. If you really want to know the details and what a transport is, consult your local CCNE. Mm -hmm. I guarantee they have a laminated card showing the entire seven-layer OSI model in their pockets at all times. In short, TCP does the carrying, TLS does the encrypting, HTTP is the traffic and the website itself. TLS in HTTP and 1 and 2 are optional, which is why there's a difference between HTTP and HTTPS. Right. Okay. Are we all good? I mean, if we want to get super technical about TLS and how it's implemented, there's actually two separate phases to it. There's the authentication component and then the actual encryption component, and you can use one or both. True. And we'll we'll touch on that a tiny bit. I was trying to figure out where to actually talk about the details and what to cut because this is already long enough. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about some of the big moments in these various early HTTPs before we get into HTTP3. Sure. The big thing about 1.1, which was signed into standards law in January of 1997, was an attempt to improve performance for parallel TCP connections. Now, what this means is you can open a whole lot of connections at the same time to do the download of what you need. Mm -hmm. Previously, it would open one, download one, close. Open one, download one, close. If you try to have a page that, say, has more than one thing on it or reaches out to other websites for content, you can see how this would have been annoying. Mm -hmm. Opening these parallel connections is like a grocery store that suddenly goes from one register to 10 registers. The more registers that are open, the faster the amount of shoppers they can get through. Right. Still means that each con connection requires all of the TCP language. And the most important part about that is the TCP handshake establishing a reliable connection. But it's still better than waiting for one at a time, mm -hmm. aka the 1.0 way. Because this is always a matter of people create based on the environment they understand. Right. When new people come in and build on top of it, they realize limitations quite quickly. Mm -hmm. So the person who originally started working with HTTP, Tim Berners-Lee, his intention was, I'm just transferring some text. So it's going to be he a just wanted things. For a file. He wanted one page to be able to link to another page because he had a bad memory and kind of forgot who people were and what they did. So he, me. <laughs> Tim Berners-Lee is all of us. Yes, I feel seen. So that was 1.1. And as you said, uh, that lasted for a while. HTTP2 came out. But the big thing that happened in HTTP2 was actually in May of 2015 hmm. when they introduced the concept of streaming. Hmm. Now, streaming is not just mean Netflix, kids. It has other ideals. The one that we're focused on is creating one open TCP connection from one host to your web browser mm -hmm. through all the mysteries of the internet, mm -hmm. then downloading everything you need from that one host through the same connection, multiple right. lanes, same stream, mm -hmm. which means that the TCP handshake has to be done one time per host, but you can have any number of additional streams open inside of that connection. So if you're downloading from a site that has 10 images on it, they're all on the same host. Mm -hmm. They all come in through the same channel. Think about this as 
a multi-lane highway. Or maybe even better, think about it as the multi-lane turnpike. Okay. You pay the toll to get on the turnpike. That's your TCP handshake. Many lanes for many numbers of cars, but it's all coming from one place and all going to the other one. You only, all right, in most states, you only have to pay the toll <laughs> once. Florida, I'm looking at you. Now, this does mean that if there is an incident with a packet and the packet requires retransmission, all of the other packets behind it will be interrupted. Hmm. So that's a challenge. However, because this solution requires so much less in the way of TCP handshakes, performance is better over the line in general. Mm -hmm. It's a trade-off, but it's better. Right. So there are actually some games that you can play with HTTP to organize the images that you're downloading in order to make the maximize the bandwidth in the way that it's deployed to make the site load the way you want to. Is that something that is generally determined by the web server that's serving up the page, the client, or is it some combination of the two? It's based on the HTTP stream, which you can tell in your web page, the actual HTTP document, something like loading equals lazy for your less important images, which basically means I'm putting these things in an order for you to download them. Mm -hmm. And this image is least important. Put it at the back of the line. Okay. So that's a simple example. There's more to it. Um, and this was also where I hit the limit of how much do I really care about web design? <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, it's a tough one. So basically, that's the, the difference between HTTP 1.1 and HTTP point two or not point two just two mm -hmm. side note there are actually quite a few web pages that exist that you can use to visualize these streams in real time with a website that is alive on the internet i personally spent way too much time fooling around with page performance metrics from webpagetest.org this website gives you a jillion test options and outputs a double jillion at least pieces of website performance data even before you pay for the product. So it's a free site with, you know, do you want to know more by a subscription? But for free, you can learn a lot about how your web page loads and the order that these things come up in. It's pretty cool. Cool. All right. Anyway, back to HTTP2. As time went on, other problems cropped up as the internet got bigger and more, well, some would say convoluted, some would say interconnected, some would say mixologized into an impossible miasma of the eighth dimensional complexity that would make MC Escher cry out for mercy. Whatever you want to call it, it changed fast, even in this recent time period between 2015 and 2022. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things in the way between your browser and the server, routers and hops, transit gateways, CDNs, et cetera, et cetera. And I say et cetera with enthusiasm because I'm not a network guy. I'm sure I'm missing a lot. Right. I, one of the biggest things that changed about the internet was the rise of the CDN. Right. 
And now when you connect to a web server, a web server, I can put those in air quotes that everyone can clearly see, you're really connecting to who knows. So part of the web page could be coming from a local edge point that's being served by Cloudflare, but part of the website could be coming from various ads that are snapped into that site and the ad brokers who are serving up those ads, which are also going to pull from other web pages. And the, the, it all just kind of expands out almost like a web from a single page. <laughs> almost like a web. Huh. <laughs> anyway. So two big things, well, three big things about HTTP2. One is the streams that we just talked about. Another one is along the lines of security. Security in HTTP2 is a bolt-on. Remember, HTTP versus HTTPS. The additional encapsulation has to be done by another protocol called TLS. Mm -hmm. Doing that kind of security was not part of the HTTP standard. It was a bolt-on. And the other standard, of course, is TCP. Everything we've talked about has assumed TCP and not really discussed it at all. This is just what's going to happen. Now, TCP has gotten its own standards and its own refinements over time, but it's still always been incremental. Mm -hmm. Little steps along the way for a technology that worked great is rock solid stable, but has been pretty static since the 70s. I mean, due to the fact that it underpins so much of what happens in networking well beyond just HTTP, it's right. hard to update or change that standard without breaking things. And network people are already tired of everyone telling them that stuff is broken. So they're like, nope, not changing that. <laughs> Which is fair. And there are alternatives. I mean, a lot of internet properties do use UDP. Video sharing services like a Netflix or a video, um, what is it that we're doing? Conference. Yeah. A video conference service like Zoom. Use UDP all the time. The reason for this is UDP is way faster. Mm -hmm. Because no handshakes, right? Just right. connections and passing packets as fast as humanly possible. For things where the packets are disposable, like in video, this is not a big deal. You lose a packet, there's a teeny tiny quick blip. You lose like five packets, somebody sounds like a robot for a second. Mm -hmm. No big deal, right? Now this does not ideal for say downloading a file, where if you lose one packet a file will be completely corrupted. And if it's not corrupted, it's going to break in hilarious and unexpected ways. Right. And this is something that TCP has built-in controls to handle. It has the idea of an order in which packets arrive and being able to reassemble those packets properly. It knows when a packet is missing from a flow because the checksums don't add up within the control protocol. And it also has support for things like congestion and backing off when you're overloading the other side of, of the connection. All that stuff right. is baked in TCP. UDP doesn't have it, but that doesn't mean you can't implement that higher up in the stack. Eggs, Zachary. And that is exactly what Quick is trying to do. So the first thing about HTTP 3 is that HTTP 3 and Quick are two different things. HTTP rides on top of Quick. Quick really is a replacement for TCP and TLS with a lot of features of both. Mm -hmm. So Quick is intended to utilize UDP 
because UDP gives it maximum speed. Mm -hmm. Quick handles everything else in a way that they believe is better than how it was done with TLS TCP combination before. So quick handles the encryption. It's built in by default. Quick handles the reliability. They handle packet matching and resends. They handle that via their own implementation of streams at the transport layer. They also do the logical flows. So instead of the way that it works with TCP, where one flow being resent temporarily stops all the traffic, one failure of a download of a stream in quick will not interfere with another. Hmm. So these are the big things that they were trying to do. And the fun thing about all of this is quick runs over ports that are already expected. And that would be UDP port 443. So like you said last time, how do you, you know, how do I sign up for HTTP three? You don't have to do nothing. It's handled by the server and it's handled by your web browser. Right. There's a little response header that says, Hey, we speak HTTP three. Everybody agrees that that's what's going to happen. And bingo bongo, you're using HTTP three and you don't even necessarily know it. Right. For those who are just consuming HTTP three, they just get the benefit by using a modern browser. Correct. Which is probably ideal because the less that it bothers the end user, the less the end user even knows that there's something to complain about. Right. It reminds me of the fact that like when I go to my in-laws, they just accepted the wireless router that was given to them by their cable company 10 years ago or something. So it is probably still a B series router, maybe G, which means it's super slow, which means I had to force them to replace it because they were asking me why, you know, certain things weren't working very well, like streaming anything. And it's because they were running this really old thing, which required them to do something. Sure, right. the cable company could have been proactive in sending them a new router with an upgraded wireless kit on it, but there's really no, you know, benefit to them doing so. So they did. You're talking crazy. I like that the fact is here, almost all modern browsers automatically update themselves to the latest version. And if they don't already have support for HTTP3 and Quick, they will when the next version rolls out. And just like everything else we talk about with browsers, check your local browser listings for the details. Depending on which flavor you have and which version you're on, it might be experimental. It might be something you have to enable. It might just turn on all by itself. You wait long enough, and they're all just going to turn on by themselves. Mm -hmm. But your mileage may vary if you want to guarantee you're able to use HTTP3 right now. So... HTTP3 has been in development in its current iteration since like 2018. Now, they're actually, annoyingly, there was a quick before that that Google was working on in like 2014, but it was a bit, effectively, it was abandoned and they started over and they didn't change the name. So, this makes historical Googling somewhat confusing. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but anyway. We have definitive numbers and some things to talk about that are not hypothetical. So the first one is HTTP3 over quick is already being used. 
Cloudflare, who is a CDN and has a certain amount of visibility into the overall network of the world, <laughs> um, estimates that HTTP3 and Quick make up between 25 and 30% of current traffic that they have observed this year, which is a bigger number than I was expecting. Yeah. Um, another report from F5 says that 75% of Facebook traffic is utilizing HTTP3 and Quick, which is pretty wild. Is that primarily using the Facebook applications, which could just bake it in? Right. Makes sense. And you know that, that does make sense. And I guess that's something that we should have talked about too. It's like, if you use it through a browser, it's one thing. If you do it through the downloaded application, it's kind of up to the application person to build it appropriately. But right. most of the time, especially in a thing like Facebook, where you have a situation where, you know, twitchy Gen Z characters who can't bear to wait that 2.1 seconds for the site to load, it should load in 0.9 seconds, dad. Oh, this is not just Gen this Z. is one way to kind of guarantee that this stuff gets there as fast as possible. Gotcha. And if you think about it, uh, Facebook is a great example of a site that would really benefit from this because it's got all kinds of dynamic site uh, artifacts that are constantly changing. So the faster that they can have these things download, the better. So an interesting other thing that Quick utilizes or has the ability to utilize is the concept of early data. Now this is actually a TLS concept which was referred to as zero RTT, the full name being zero round trip time connection resumption. What it meant was if a handshake had already been a success through TLS and the connection has to reestablish for whatever reason, the client will send data immediately along with the first steps of reestablishing the TLS handshake. Hmm. Not bad idea. The idea being, well, we already know, it's almost like if I call you and the call gets interrupted, and I call you back, zero RTT would mean I can start talking before you answer the phone. And when you answer the phone, you get all that information. Now, Quick takes this one step further and permits early data alongside the first handshake request. Hmm. Now, this is a big performance benefit as it's the handshake that takes most of the time. And that's always gonna be true no matter how fast the handshake is. Enabling this in Quick is, of course, optional, and a lot of servers don't use it because there's a big risk. You have not established a connection yet. Right. Um, risk of man in the middle or replay attacks have been demonstrated, at least theoretically, since the handshake hasn't been established yet. Interesting to note that Cloudflare, in analyzing the issue, lean heavily against this practice. Yet make it clear that it's up to, quote, the app server to enable, disable it. Hmm. So, gee, performance versus security, where have I heard this song before? Mm, the tune is familiar. <laughs> <laughs> um, we talked about independent streams, so I won't go into that again for too long. But the idea here was to take lessons learned from HTTP 1 and 2 and take it the next step further for independent downloads of all streams. And that seems to be one of the biggest successes that Quick has made. And something else that's interesting, since Quick itself is a transport layer uh, software, mm -hmm. guess what they brought back? 
I don't know. Ping. Ping. They brought back Ping, or at least their own implementation of it. Because if you remember, Ping of the old version mm-hmm. runs over ICMP. Right. Which is different than TCP and also different than ICP. A little bit. There's a lot less Vago involved. <laughs> ICMP, of course, for quote unquote uh, security by obscurity reasoning, gets disabled a lot, meaning that ping and softwares that run on top of or alongside of ping also don't work a lot. Mm-hmm. So I don't really have a lot more to comment, but it's just interesting to me that they put in impl- an implementation in for a software that's probably as old as networking. <laughs> Very close to, yes. So so it's all one, it's all just roses and and happiness and rainbows and magic unicorns, right? We're going to get all of this and there's no cost or trade-offs at all. It's just quick is better and we're going to use it. Sunshine and rainbows and unicorns with perfect pitch. All unicorns have perfect pitch, Chris. <laughs> but I repeat myself. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are definitely some challenges. And one thing to note and to remember is that quick is a replacement for the transport. Mm-hmm. It is not part of HTTP. So you, if you are a network person, are going to have to learn quick right alongside TCP and UDP. And of course, ICMP, but who cares about that anymore? Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. There's more to it, though. One of the biggest things, at least for now, is that creating and maintaining quick streams is very CPU intensive. Statistics have shown that it is two to three times more CPU intensive than standard HTTP2, which is a lot. A tad, yeah. This has got serious real-world implications for companies that run their web uh, presences on a shoestring budget. You know, your T2 micros might not cut it anymore if all of a sudden you need two to three times the CPU requirements. Right, but it's a trade-off. You know, if you... You have to decide, do you want to support Quick? Does it actually benefit the running of your site in any way? Or is it fine to just stick to HTTP2 and TCP for now? Right. Yeah, and that's something else to to note. This kind of traffic, since it is new, Quick being brand new, um, your servers are going to have to have some kind of a fallback. Mm Mm-hmm. And remember what I said, um, your browser asks for a redirect effectively to move traffic to HTTP3. So if it doesn't exist, then you will have to have the HTTP2 capability. Otherwise, people won't be able to go to your website. Right. So you're still going to be running both of these side by side. Right. And a lot of this is because Quick is so brand new. So one of the things about it is it runs in user land. Hmm. Basically, there is no presence of Quick directly built into any kernel as of yet. So this could be one reason why there is so much CPU penalty, constant translation between kernel and user land for every single transaction all of the time. Now, knowing how, let's say, careful um, Linus has been in adding new things to the kernel, um, I think it might take some time for that to get rolled into the kernel, but that will be interesting to see, especially from a performance perspective, what difference that makes. Right. There are some 
there, there's the possibility of leveraging um, EBB, eBPF to handle some of the functionality for quick without actually baking it into the kernel. So offloading, you know, anything, any function that would be supported by eBPF that quick mm -hmm. needs to do, offloading that into that engine. So that does run in kernel space and doing the rest inside of user space. But that's up to the developers out there who are writing servers to support HTTP3 and Quick to, to implement that functionality. Right. And I think that's really the biggest thing is the newness of this traffic. I mean, there's a lot that we take for granted about things that exist in the world for network monitoring, for example, tooling. Network people are well accustomed to and understand TCP mechanics and metrics. Mm -hmm. And so are the dashboard vendors. And won't you think about the dashboards? Won't Ned? someone please think about all the single panes of glass that I have? Uh, oh, everyone drink. <sighs> um, these kind of tools are going to have to adopt a quick as well. Uh, and there's another section of the network world that's going to have to adopt too quick. And that would be securing it. Mm. The Department of No. I'm familiar with it. <laughs> um, quick is new. Mm. New is scary. Mm. It also shows as an opportunity and uh, an environment that is not thoroughly understood in terms of how to protect it, especially in the enterprise. So if you look at firewall vendors, pretty much all the major names you've heard of, Cisco, Palo Alto, Fortinet, as of right now, they recommend disabling Quick entirely. Huh. Basically, what they say is close down UDP on port 40, 443 by default. Recognizing that there is a fallback that exists, your traffic will fall back to observable TCP-based 443. Hmm. And I think you One hit reason. on something is the observable factor there. Yes. Remember, TCL, the TLS is encapsulation. That means intensely security conscious shops could decrypt at the firewall level, inspect a packet, then re-encrypt before sending the traffic down to the desktop. Guess what right now you can't do with the new hotness? <laughs> that. So you can't uh, at the firewall level, because I know especially some like layer seven firewalls, they will decrypt at the firewall, inspect the traffic and then re-encrypt it to pass it along but I'm assuming that is not supported by Quick. The protection is entirely within the Quick packet and the encryption is different. The only observable things that you have from the packet are source, destination, and checksum. And a little bit of something called connection ID, which we'll talk about in a second. But a lot more of the packet gets and maintains encryption at the Quick level as opposed to the TLS level over TCP. Okay. So that's a challenge that as yet has not been solved in terms of being able to unpack, inspect, and repack. Mm -hmm. Now, again, this could just be because of newness. Or maybe now, I don't want the firewalls <laughs> taking a look at my encrypted traffic, and it's very much intentional. Maybe you that need to find is, a better way. Right. That is a very good question. Um, and a philosophical question. So let me just crank open these five gallons of kombucha and let's get started. No. Um, 
So something else on the security versus feature seesaw. One of the ways that Quick enables fast packet delivery, independent streams, and a feature that I actually didn't touch on, which is when you move from one network to another, like for example, if you're outside on cellular mm-hmm. and then you walk inside and now all of a sudden you're on Wi-Fi, you know how all your connections get jacked up for uh, a few seconds before the network reestablishes itself? Seconds, minutes, hours, whatever. <laughs> Forever, reboot my entire life. Yeah. Who knows? Um, Quick tries to get around that. And one of the things that they use to do that is what's called a connection ID. A connection ID is a quick header uh, descriptor mm-hmm. that is specific to each stream. And each stream is a one-way path, meaning if I'm talking to you, there's actually two CIDs, one for the traffic going in your direction, one for the traffic coming back. Mm-hmm. There's an association that's made between those two things. Um, and you can have as many of these as you need because, again, independent, unlimited streams. But the idea is, you know, uh, I'm sorry, Quick knows your connection ID. And if you bounce from one network to another, it will follow with the connection ID. And in theory, will reconnect much, much faster than mm-hmm. having to reestablish through a full handshake that you would have to do through TCP. Okay. So this is very much in the um, theoretical. And if you read up on it, it is marked as, quote, poorly supported at present. <laughs> but the concern is it's an unencrypted identifier and the rest of the stream is encrypted. So what are the chances that something bad could happen? And that's a, that's a tough question. It's a valid question, but it's also... A question that oftentimes is impossible to answer until we have more information. It's impossible to answer until it starts getting implemented broadly and then someone figures out how to break it or right. how to hijack it and, you know, at least intercept traffic or, you know, add their own traffic to the stream or something like that. Right. So the way that Quick tries to protect against um, hijacking of sessions is they do external internal masking of connection IDs. So the external connection ID is unencrypted by necessity mm-hmm. because once you you have to have that information out there before you establish a connection, otherwise nobody can read it. Right. You can't read the code if I don't tell you how to read the code. <laughs> once the connection is encrypted, however, there's a secondary version of a connection ID, which is not actually called that, but for simplicity's sake, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And that should be used to verify the authenticity of the communications that we're talking about. So the internal private secondary connection ID changes. And because that part is encrypted, the rest of the observers can't see that it changed. Meaning that if they try to do something and try to do some type of a replay or a man in the middle on the connection ID, it's going to be invalid because it doesn't match the encrypted ID. However, there's an opening there and people are concerned about it. Naturally. Um, I personally think that there's more smoke than fire. And I actually think that you're absolutely right. Overall, losing this visibility is not mean that the sky is falling. No. What it means is endpoint and application level security are going to become the most important players with network level security still being important, but not being the end all be all. It's an extension of 
a trend that we've already seen over time. Whereas before the pandemic and also before a lot of work from home and the sort of distributed workforces, you could place your firewalls in front of your end users at the office that they work at and force all internet traffic to go in and out through those firewalls and do all your fun inspection stuff. And then, you know, we all started moving out to these other various endpoints and it became, okay, well now you have to use the VPN. So we're going to force you to connect back to our network so we can push you through our firewalls. And people don't like that because VPNs suck. So uh, the next natural extension was that instead of using these firewalls, let's subscribe to a service like Zscaler or something along those lines where instead of my internet proxy, my internet traffic being proxied back to a firewall in the data center, now it's being proxied up to this service in the cloud. But I think the even more logical extension of that is to have something that's running on the client end that is inspecting that traffic and acting as a distributed firewall across all of the clients. And I think that's probably the most likely thing that's eventually going to replace a lot of these big, robust firewall tin boxes that are running in in various data centers. Right. And when you read the news and the the technical issue releases, I think you can tell where people's motivation lies when it comes to these types (laughs) of strategies. So like I said, this is very, very new. So everybody's putting out position papers, right? Um, The fact that enterprise has to reckon with the fact that network level security can't be the end all be all anymore. Mm-hmm. And endpoint and application are going to become far more important. Mm-hmm. Uh, really helps explain why pure network players like Cisco advocate disabling quick entirely <laughs> while application and load balancing face companies like F5 think that quick is inevitable. Right. Especially since F5 also owns Nginx. So they are at the web server level And then they're also at that sort of distributed Kubernetes clusters, service mesh kind of level as well. So they're very invested on the, like you said, the application and load balancing side of things. Right. And it's, I didn't throw anything in there about the servers, but from what I read, Nginx is at the forefront of getting quick up and running and in a meaningful Mm. fashion for companies where like another company like Apache (laughs) is dragging, is dragging their feet a little bit. Well, of course they are. Patchy. <laughs> uh, well, that was interesting in terms of what what's rolling out. I'm wondering if there is anything from a technology professional perspective that it at this point is it just be aware of it until it becomes more popular. Well, I mean, I think people have to assume that it's going to happen in mm-hmm. the sense that 25 to 30 percent of the traffic is already quick and http3 right it's going to happen because it happened it's the the bus has already left <laughs> yes i hope you were on um, it <laughs> you know i think we've got a couple of years at least of sites running in a redundant capacity mm-hmm. http3 alongside http2 just because it takes a long time some places are resistant to change Look at how long it's taken to get IPv6 off the ground. It's not a perfect metaphor, but no, <laughs> it's not for for many reasons that we can't possibly get into right now. But yes, uh, that was a metaphor that occurred to me: the IPv4 v6 equivalency 
when it comes. Yeah, well, I said it first, so I win. I, I'll let you have it because, you know, <laughs> I'm gracious like that. Cool. All right, well, lightning round? Let's lightning round. Let's lightning round. Despite crypto winter, investors see a Web3 spring in unstoppable domains. Even though the value of Bitcoin and Ethereum have cratered in the last few months, losing more than half of their value, uh, Bitcoin, as of this recording, is at $23,000 a coin, roughly, and uh, ETH is at $1.6,000 per uh, ETH coin, whatever, Ethereum? Sure. Sure. Uh, and countless other cryptocurrencies have folded, defrauded their investors, and learned that cyclical borrowing is, in fact, a bad thing. Despite all of that, investors still seem keen to pour more money into the Web3 train's coal chute. One recent investment that caught my eye was an identity platform, Unstoppable Domains, who recently raised $65 million in a Series A round with a valuation of $1 billion dollars. Indeed, this Web3 identity platform with 2.5 million registered NFT domains is now a financial unicorn, a term which used to describe the rare occurrence of a startup valued at $1 billion and now describes your cousin's Ponzi scheme out of a garage in Queens, New York. No, Mario, I don't want to invest in your NFT to Transam Mario coin. You can't spell coin, without icon. Anywho, Unstoppable Domains offers the ability to register NFT domains using top-level domains like .crypto or .dao. Once you purchase a domain from them, it is yours in perpetuity, but you need to mint the domain on a public blockchain to actually use it. Rather than relying on a domain registrar to maintain a record of ownership for a domain, the blockchain is the record of ownership, meaning you truly own the domain until you lose your crypto wallet or accidentally transfer ownership due to a smart contract on Ethereum you didn't realize was about to fire. Honestly, <laughs> the idea of domain ownership on a public blockchain might be like the closest thing I've seen to a Web3 product being viable and valuable. You know, except for the whole environmental nightmare thing that is blockchain tech. This may warrant a deeper dive on a future episode, so I think I'll leave it at that. 100 terabyte SSDs are available with 200 terabyte SSDs on the horizon. Just like, what? <laughs> What is storage space anymore? A mere five months ago, Nimbus released the largest SSD available, a 100 terabyte animal? Uh, behemoth. Let's go with behemoth. <laughs> now, this was an unquestionably enterprise-style drive with a price tag of, and I quote, $40,000. Right. Amazingly, Five months later, that price has held. But the price and the size record might not last much longer. SSD manufacturer Micron has announced updates on their roadmap, one of which is a 232-layer NAND that should be sufficient to support production of 200 and possibly even 400 terabyte drives by the end of next year. 
For comparison, that 100 terabyte drive that was state of the art 150 days ago, a mere 64 layer chip. <laughs> Pathetic. And there's plenty of other room for innovating further. The drives mentioned are all of the 3.5 inch variety with no discussion of NVMe. It is quickly going to get interesting how manufacturers and consumers actually use these drives. NVMe or no, SSD has a crazy advantage when it comes to read speed. One single giant SSD will definitely outperform a number of smaller HDDs on read speed. So there's value. Rebuilding those RAID arrays in the event of a drive failure though, <laughs> oof. I do not want to be in the room when you have to talk to finance about why you really need a RAID 60 deployment of these things. Of course, it's going to be better than RAID 50 Ebenezer. There's 10 more RAIDs. <laughs> Meanwhile, I look at my four terabyte time machine drives and weep. Can IBM protect crypto against quantum? Yes and no. Because it's quantum. Whoa. Do you get it? I'll, I'll, I'll see myself out. One of the dangers slash promises of quantum computing is that it will be able to crack previously unbreakable encryption algorithms due to its ability to simultaneously pursue multiple paths of computation. There are rumors that intelligence agencies across the world have begun to cache troves of encrypted data with the hope that quantum computing will allow them to decipher it in the not-too-distant future. Lovely. As a protection against the theoretical encryption-busting capabilities of quantum, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, aka NIST, has developed four new quantum-safe cryptographic algorithms three of which were developed with the assistance of IBM. It should be no surprise then that Big Blue has announced that their latest Z16 mainframe will be capable of supporting two of those algorithms, Crystal's Kyber and Crystal's Dilithium. What does Crystal stand for? It stands for Cryptographic Suite of Algebraic Lattices. Of course, silly. Not the most tortured backronym I've heard in my time, so well done. As, a, as implied by the algebraic lattices verbiage, use of these algorithms requires the Crypto Express 8S card, which employs lattice-based cryptography. Of course, you know, I don't have to explain to you what lattice-based cryptography is, right? I mean, I certainly no. understand it, and I wouldn't impugn on your intelligence by assuming you don't, right? Right. Let's move on immediately. Okay. <laughs> Congress passes CHIPS Act, helping to fund tech programs in the United States. After the traditional amount of whining, complaining, and tearing of garments and gnashing of teeth, the House of Representatives passed the CHIPS Act. Expected to be signed by Biden to sweet, the bill is intended to bolster semiconductor research and production here in the continental United States. The bill is primarily made up out of tax benefits. So while the $280 billion price tag seems high, nearly all of it is not out of pocket. Corpo interests, unsurprisingly, were all for it. Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger applauded and announced that the bill being signed means that their Ohio chip fabrication plan that he's been teasing forever, some might say held hostage, will finally get off the ground. 
probably not a minute too soon, as Intel also posted a loss for Q2 2022, the first time that's happened in, quote, decades. As usual, there are a lot of other interesting elements to the bill, one of which is a provision that will put money into fusion research, an area of research that has been embarrassingly unfunded for decades. Something else in there mandates NASA fly SLS missions, which is a bit of a boondoggle since SLS is way too expensive, has never properly flown, and should probably just be retired as a bad idea altogether. So that's bad. Oh, but it funds NIST and the National Science Foundation for the next five years. Hmm. So that's good. We um, we need those. Yeah, a little bit, especially with all the, the crypto quantum action. Taco Cat weeps for the fallen. As, <sighs> as a true taco aficionado, I mourned the passing of the stalwart staple of ice cream trucks everywhere, the Choco Taco. If you've never had this delicious delight, I am both saddened that perhaps you never shall, but excited that you have the opportunity to make it yourself. Certainly, there are those who prefer the sickly sweetness of the strawberry eclair, or the ostentatious display of the bomb pop. But those of us who are right knew that the Choco Taco was best. Alas and alack, as always, being right is a minority position, and the purveyors and creators of the dessert delight, the Klondike Company, have ceased production. No longer will the dulcet tones of an ice cream vendor siren bring joy to my heart, only misery and regret for what once was. Take heart, though, dear listener. Lifehacker has published a recipe for recreating the Choco Taco with a Stroop waffle and some gumption. Not as convenient as $3 and a friendly street vendor, but nevertheless an achievable goal. Based on the outcry of the very vocal on Twitter, I'm certain another company will pick up the taco torch shortly to lavish us with a similar creation. Perhaps a gelato tostada or a mocha empanada? Whoa. <sighs> the possibilities are as endless as they are scrumptious. Now back to your regularly scheduled tech garbage. Taco. Taco, taco, taco. Oh, sorry. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the browser company's Arc Browser getting a wider release. Arc has been in private development since late 2020, but they have worked their way far enough through the browser company's waitlist that even I finally got access. The idea behind Arc is that it's going to, quote, change the way we think about browsers. It is one of a large line of products that are trying to imagine how we interact with the World Wide Web on a daily basis. Arc even has competition in this space from a popular and non-beta product called Sidekick and a new very beta product called Daybridge that is trying to reimagine calendars. First thoughts, all the names chosen are unfortunate. <laughs> There's literally already a product called Arc Browser. It is used to play old games on your PC via emulators. Mm -hmm. There's also ArcGIS, a super popular but niche. That is not a contradiction. It totally can happen. Geographic information system. And also the browser company. It's like these people hate the concept of Googling. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, you meant you wanted to hear about the browser itself. Sure. My bad. Okay. So on first view, it's a reorganized Chrome with multiple levels of bookmarks and what I can only describe as semi-permanent tabs. It can use all the Chrome extensions that you need, which is great, and in my case is up to 10. It was up to 12, but then I figured out ways to customize uBlock Origin, so two of them got kicked to the curb, thank God. Yay! One thing that Chrome still doesn't have is functionality that even faintly resembles Firefox's containerization feature. This is a potential deal breaker as I need to be able to log into multiple accounts for services like Google, Amazon, and Microsoft simultaneously. Three guesses which company is giving me the most grief when it comes to account switching. I'm just Microsoft, kidding. It's all Microsoft, of them. Microsoft. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, Arc does have something called Spaces, which is pretty cool in the sense that it helps you organize your tabs and focus your workload, but that's it. There's no isolation. It's only organization. Hmm. So, so far, Arc does feel like learning a bit of a new language, a new toolkit, and the part that I think is going to make the most use, new keyboard shortcuts. Arc requires an account, at least for now, um, which also enables sharing between applications that you have installed on multiple computers. One big downside right now, it is only available for Mac, hmm. but Windows is on the horizon. Arc also has some interesting functionality built in, including a whiteboard tool, as well as a notes tool, and a picture-in-picture -picture video window that works real well. Hmm. So if you start running, uh, let's say, oh, I don't know, MLB.com on one tab, and you just want to switch over but still have a little tiny picture in the corner of the Phillies losing in dramatic fashion to the last place team, I'm not bitter. The Cubs suck. What was the question? <laughs> Also, it's important to remember that Arc is designed not to be totally free. Right now it's free because it's in beta, but if it becomes public, they have the uh, concept of enterprise tools that could push the cost as high as $12 a month. Now, I've always said that a paid product is going to be better than one based on stealing data to generate ad revenue. This could be a chance for me to put my money where my mouth is. Or... I'll just give up on this whole thing entirely in a few days and go back to the way I always did things and pretend none of this ever happened. Mm -hmm. Which we'll see. My previous plan was Firefox, Daily Driver, and Vivaldi when I need Chrome for things that Firefox can't do, in particular video over tools like Microsoft Teams. I'm glaring in Redmond's direction as we speak. Mm. The lack of tab isolation is really frustrating. Mm -hmm. And Chrome, another limitation in the sense that you can't configure it as much as Firefox, you cannot handle extreme pop-up blocking tests natively. However, uBlock Origin can. Hooray! <sighs> I suppose keep organized and keep, uh, keep your ear on this station. I can give another update in like a month if people care. Well, or we can, like I said, just forget about it completely and act like none of this ever happened. I already forgot who I am and where we are. Hey, forgot what? thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile if you made it all the way to the end. So 
congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now go buy a new refrigerator so you can get an oversized cardboard box, turn it into a fortress of solitude, and hang an exclusionary sign on the outside. You've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80, respectively, or follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever, if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at ChaosLever.com if you like reading things, which you shouldn't. Ma'am, this is an Arby's, not the Library of Congress. We have the meats, not the deets. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. You know, I think that jokes about Arby's are going to last far longer than Arby's. Nothing will last longer than their roast beef. Oh. Oh. Oh.